In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Daniel. What's going on, guys? Today, we'll be talking about anacyclosis, also known as the cycle of governments. You'll learn what that is if you don't know. Here's what we'll be covering in today's episode. One, how did I first discover this theory? Then, what is anacyclosis? There's facts about the Greek scholar Polybius. Quotes from Polybius explaining anacyclosis. What are the six forms of government in the cycle, and how does the cycle flow? Three ideal forms of government in three corrupted forms. Examples of anacyclosis in history, specifically Rome, Sparta, and Athens. How has anacyclosis affected America? What can we do to slow the cycle and preserve the republic? And of course, we'll wrap the show up with this week's hot takes. Before we dive into our main topic, since this is the very first episode, we'd like to take a moment to talk about the podcast itself, how it came to be, and what we have planned for the future. So, this podcast, Sons of Antiquity podcast, to me really started off at the gym, but I know there was something that happened before that. And correct me if I'm wrong, Evan, I believe it was at dinner. Right. Right. We were out with the wives and the topic came up of, you know, us always discussing politics like we've been doing really for the last eight years, maybe at least since high school. I mean, it goes back a ways. Um, And so they said, hey, jokingly, you guys should do a podcast. And, you know, we kind of laugh. Ha ha. That's that's pretty funny. But then we started thinking, okay, maybe we really could. And so we started going to the gym, and at the gym, you know, in between sets, we'd say, hey, man, what do you think about this? What do you think about this idea? And that's really where we got the ball rolling, and everything just kind of fell into place from there slowly, of course, um, with the pandemic, and I was working out of town. But when everything kind of came together, it resulted in this podcast you're listening to right now. And I will say we are groundbreaking in that we're two white males who started a podcast. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you have never heard anything like this before. Yes, yes. Guaranteed. (laughs) So um, as far as what this podcast is about, you know, what what it is, is really a, um, in my mind, I've always thought of it as a, a learn with us type of deal. You know, obviously we are not experts in very many fields, but we are deeply interested in so many different topics, and we know that there are people out there who are interested in those topics also and are wanting to be a part of a community that will share information and really try to build a better understanding of history so that we can, in turn, understand what's going on right now. That's the goal. We hope it won't be dry as if we were some real academics so yeah. we're trying to add some flavor to serious topics that will benefit your life. 
Oh, yeah, you'll get some of that flavor later when we get to the hot take segment. That's for sure. <laughs> but um, where do you want this to go? You know, how far do you want this to go, Evan? You know, I think we just need to see where it goes and see the response we get from our thousands of fans. Oh, yeah, they're lining up already. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, One step uh, at a time, really, you're saying. One step at a time. Yeah, it's just bringing... Uh, old topics or things that have been around a while and trying to apply them to the modern world to better your own life, either through knowledge or practical, um, I don't know, through practice in your life. Absolutely, absolutely. So to get into the meat and potatoes, really, of this episode uh, on anacyclosis, let me ask you this. Uh, How did you come across this idea in the first place, Evan? Well, it's pretty funny. I first gained interest in this theory uh, when my previous girlfriend let me borrow her copy of Machiavelli's Discourses on Livy. I read a good amount of it, but then I made the wise decision to break up with her. And unfortunately, <laughs> I had to give it back, even though I kind of tried to hide it. <laughs> oh, so she did she come it. after you and try to get it back? She was like, that's my book. <sighs> okay. She must have really right. liked him. No, I, I think she just wanted it back. Oh, she wasn't so a I, big she, Machiavelli she, fan? No, she just loaned it to me. I guess she, I think she had to read it in high school or something. Hmm. Anyways. Interesting, interesting. But I, you will be happy to know I recently acquired a used copy of the same book and read a lot of it for this episode. Oh, okay, so it worked out. You've got your own. Yeah, it took, you know, many, many years, but I have it now. Well, right on, right on. So let's ask the big question. What is anacyclosis? Anacyclosis is a theory of cyclical political evolution, which explains the transitions of governments from rule by the one to rule by the few to rule by the many, then back to the beginning. It's otherwise known as the cycle of collapse because of the tendency for nations to go through war or major social upheaval during the transitions. This theory was conceived by the philosopher Polybius, a Greek historian scholar who lived from 200 to 118 BC. So let's go over some facts about Polybius. Uh, he is famous for his work, The Histories, which covers the rise of the Roman Republic as it came to dominate the Mediterranean region. Polybius was even an eyewitness to the sack of Carthage in 146 BC. Imagine being there in person and seeing that. I mean, incredible. Absolutely incredible to to think about what this guy saw and what he witnessed. And as we'll learn, that really uh, helped him shape his theories. He was heavily influenced by the works of Plato and Aristotle, whose writings on politics from 200 years earlier really shaped his understanding of government. Polybius was interested in defining an ideal and balanced form of government, like the Roman Republic or the Spartan constitution created by Lycurgus, I hope I'm pronouncing Lycurgus. that right, Lycurgus, both of which incorporated elements of kingship, aristocracy, and democracy. And this pursuit led him to the theory of anacyclosis. His musings on the separation of powers and ideal forms of government inspired the American Constitution nearly 2,000 years later. Now, how Polybius explains anacyclosis in his own words is what we're going to cover next uh, from the Histories book Six. So this is uh, his own words. Now, it is undoubtedly the case that most of those who profess to give us authoritative instruction in the classification of polities on these subjects distinguish three kinds of constitutions, which they designate kingship, aristocracy, democracy. But in my opinion, the question might be fairly put to them, 
whether they name these as being the only ones or as the best. In either case, I think they are wrong. For it is plain that we must regard as the best constitution that which partakes of all of these three elements. Nor can we admit that these are the only forms, for we have had before now examples of absolute and tyrannical forms of government. Polybius goes on to say, So then, we enumerate six forms of government, the three commonly spoke of, which I have just mentioned, and three more allied forms, I mean despotism, oligarchy, and mob rule. Now, Daniel, as you mentioned, there are six forms of government in the cycle. Eat, there's three good and three bad, kind of an alter ego for each. First, you start out with monarchy. That goes to t- tyranny, which becomes aristocracy, then plutocracy, which is the rule by the few and wealthy. Uh, then a restricted republic is established, which turns into a democracy. And that, that kind of develops in that in number six is also mob rule and anarchy because democracy always leads to those other two. And then the chaos, a monarchy is reestablished. So let's go in more, more in detail for each of these steps. Going from monarchy to tyranny, there is a king. He is a strong personality. He rules, rules effectively and relatively fairly. With absolute power, his line corrupts. Their rule becomes less about their subjects and more about their own gain. They may, may begin killing powerful rivals. And a little, a little addition, I remember from reading Aristotle's politics that he has a story. Um, there was a king with a, he had a philosopher on his, uh, on his uh, court, on his, yeah, in his court. And the, the king says, what do I have to do to maintain my rule? And the philosopher had a sickle and he went out to, a, <laughs> they were walking through a field or something and he cut off the, the top of the, the tallest pieces of or tallest plants oh yeah saying you need to level off the people who are above their station Mm. (laughs) so those who are trying to get too much status or money or power you cut them down you cut them down level them with the rest of the people of course i mean uh, a king has to to maintain you know order underneath them otherwise they may overthrow him yeah and well we'll get to that yeah (laughs) Okay, now going from tyranny to aristocracy, the king's despotism and persecution of the rich and powerful, because that's the most efficient, um, causes them to band together in a conspiracy. They depose the king and establish themselves as rulers. They tend to be good men, brought together in times of trouble for a common good. They also tend to be wealthy and use some of their wealth for the rest of the people in order to secure legitimacy and goodwill. Uh, That's the virtue of liberality. Um, Virtue of liberality. Yeah, and magnanimity, kind of the same thing. But going from aristocracy to plutocracy, you can see where this is going to go. Rich people tend to be intelligent and influential, even their sons, because they get good educations. And they become greedy for power and more money as time goes on. And and they remember less about, you know, freeing themselves from tyranny. Yeah, that's a point that that uh, Polybius brings up, you know, uh, explicitly that, you know, the reason that we see degeneracy over time is because the the hard won uh, battles are these are not things that the younger generation and newer, newer generations experience. And so they they don't have the same frame of mind and they they take for granted what's given to them, whether it's uh, status as a king or status as a rich aristocrat. Yeah. 
That's true. Um, they use their positions to accumulate money through corruption. Some aristocrats will rise up to defend honesty and fairness, but they will be stopped by the majority of the aristocrats because, in general, most people desire their own selfish interests. Absolutely. Virtue of selfishness. Mm, that's a can of worms okay. there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Going from this plutocracy to a restricted republic, a larger group of citizens rebels against the unfair rule of the few and establish themselves an assembly where policies will be voted on. The phase can either happen through gradual increase in suffrage as a way to appease the people or through rebellion. Suffrage is restricted to land-owning males, or that's called a democracy, most likely. And republic to democracy, the suffrage inevitably increases until, until it includes most people. Economic status is no longer a qualification for voting. There may still be some restrictions, such as in the past, men only voting, or you have to hit the age of being considered a, a full adult, or slaves or felons can't vote. But most people gain the vote by the time they're middle-aged. Democracy turns into mob rule, where people vote in order to, to secure their own interests. Because if you have a responsible person who uh, wants to you know, have a balanced budget and not spend all the money like just bribing everybody, mm -hmm. versus the person who says, you know what, I'm just going to give you some free bread. Who, yeah. who are the majority of people going to vote for? The virtuous people will vote for the responsible one. But it's easy to vote for more stuff for yourself. Yeah, it's the path of least resistance. Yeah, and that's the majority of people. The majority of people will vote for what the majority wants, and that's their own interest. Um, yeah. They, they gr the groups will form to secure these goods. The groups are not based on positive traits like virtue uh, or opinions on policy, but identity politics usually. Sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Often races, ethnicities, religions, nationalities stick together. When society is diverse in these ways, this inevitably leads to violence. The lack of central values leads to anarchy and violence. And the lack of public order leads to a public desire for it. People like order because it leads to prosperity. Chaos is not good for business. So a powerful, capable figure steps up to restore order to the land. Call him what you will, dictator, Napoleon, whatever. People are willing to give up so-called freedom which at this point is not real freedom, but licentiousness mm -hmm. uh, for stability. A king rises to power and the cycle begins anew. Imagine that all yeah. the way through that cycle. We're back to the beginning. It's all a circle, man. So let's talk about uh, some of these specific um, forms of government, the three absolute or good forms of government and the three tyrannical or bad forms. So the absolute uh, monarchy, aristocracy, and republic. Polybius considers these forms to be more pure and more just, but also more unstable and more prone to collapse into their more degenerate forms. Now, why do you think uh, he viewed them as unstable? Because they don't account for all of human nature or every class of people. It's favoring one group of people over the other, the other groups. Mm -hmm. So since everyone seeks their own interest, to an extent at least, people don't like just constantly being on the losing side if they can help it. See, hmm. Yeah, that's oh, why. Okay, so you, maybe because a, uh, you know, in a monarchy, being the king or in the king's court or whatever is 
so exclusive or yeah, being yeah. part of the aristocracy is so exclusive or even having uh, control within the republic is so exclusive it makes people feel like, hey, I- I'm a loser. You know, I'm not a part of the in crowd. Also, just the fact that when you have power and other people don't, you don't have checks on yourself, then you're more likely to take advantage of it. Maybe not at first when you're a good guy who's restoring, you know, restoring the the people to a form of peace. Yeah. You might yeah, have virtue if you're order. the first or second line, but after a while, your spoiled sons are just going <laughs> to realize that they want booze and women. Yeah. And, not <laughs> yeah, and they don't want to learn about your boring virtue. Yeah, they don't want to sit on your lap, you know, when you're some old geezer talking about your war stories. You know, they they want to pursue their own ends and Get yeah, like money. you said, booze and women. So then there are uh, the tyrannical uh, forms, uh, which degenerate, you know, from the absolute. So you have tyranny, plutocracy, and democracy. Polybius argues that these forms of government are the result of degeneracy taking hold within a nation. For example, to illustrate the difference between democracy and mob rule, Polybius says. It is not enough to constitute a democracy that the whole crowd of citizens should have the right to do whatever they wish or propose. But where reverence to the gods, succor of parents, respect to elders, obedience to laws, are traditional and habitual. In such communities, if the will of the majority prevail, we may speak of the form of government as a democracy. So right there he's, he's making an a important distinction between uh, the two. The, the absolute versus the you know, more tyrannical versions, the gen- degenerate versions, are really um, separated by how good the people are. Are the people good? Are they virtuous? Then they will create a virtuous nation. If they are not so virtuous, they will create evil, tyrannical versions of uh, their forms of government. But the thing is that within every person is good and bad this possibility. Is so just assuming that one group of people is going to always be good is destined to be wrong. Oh, of course, of yeah. course. Yeah, people people change, demographics change, and, and um, yeah, there is evil within all of us. You're right. So by this, Polybius argues that the will of the majority is simply one factor which can define both democracy and mob rule. The true difference between the two is a cultural one. In an absolute form, a nation which governs by majority rule, while also upholding certain moral codes, religious doctrines, and traditional customs would be considered a democracy. On the other hand, a nation which governs by majority rule but does not follow such customs is doomed to enable corruption, leading to abuses of power, persecution of the minority, and general mob rule. All right. Polybius may not have been able to conceive of anticyclosis or provide evidence for his existence, for its existence, without using Roman history as a case study. He tells us, quote, No clearer proof of the truth of what I say could be obtained than by a careful observation of the natural origin, genesis, and decadence of these several forms of government. For it is only by seeing distinctly how each of them is produced that a distinct view can also be obtained of its growth, zenith, and decadence, and the time, circumstance, and place in which each of these may be expected to recur. This method I have assumed to be especially applicable to the Roman Constitution, because its origin and growth have from the first followed natural causes. A surprising source, as I alluded to earlier, is Machiavelli. He echoes the sentiments of Polybius and offers insight into Rome's government, as well as the governments of Sparta and Athens in his Discourses on Livy. Here are some quotes which sum up his analysis. And by the way, Discourses on Livy refers to the volume book set that's that was written by 
Titius Levus. Oh, wow. Gesundheit. Yeah. Mm, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he was... Uh, he was personal friends of Caesar Augustus. He lived in the same time as him. Whoa, talk about name dropping. Yeah, he died uh, like during Jesus' lifetime, 17 AD, I think. Wow, and so... He was kind of the court historian. That's that's uh, why he got into history. Yeah, and so Machiavelli's writing about his observations and his yeah. records. Machiavelli brings in like his, his analysis also of Italian history that okay. he's living through. This was pre-Italian unification, so he's talking about all the different, you know, little city-states like Venice and Florence and all that. And this was important to him because he was Italian. Yeah, he was from Florence. Florence. Great city. Yes, has many of the greats. Like my boy Dante. Oh, yeah. Okay, so here are some quotes from Machiavelli in regards to Titus Livius. Quote, For a monarchy readily becomes a tyranny, an aristocracy and oligarchy, while a democracy tends to degenerate into anarchy. So that if the founder of a state should establish any one of these three forms of government, he establishes it for a short time only, since no precaution he may take can prevent it from sliding into its contrary, by reason of the close resemblance which, in this case, the virtue bears to the vice. So they're sides of the same coin. Here's a detailed description of the anacyclosis. But presently, when sovereignty grew to be hereditary no longer elective, hereditary sovereigns began to degenerate from their ancestors and, quitting worthy courses, took up the notion that princes had nothing to do but to surpass the rest of the world in sumptuous display and wantonness, and plots and conspiracies against him undertaken not by those who were weak or afraid for themselves, but by such as being conspicuous for their birth, courage, wealth, and station, could not tolerate the shameful life of the tyrant. The multitude following the lead of these powerful men took up arms against the prince and he being got rid of, obeyed these others as the liberators, who on their part, holding in hatred the name of sole ruler, formed themselves into a government and at first, while the recollection of past tyranny was still fresh, observed the laws they themselves made and postponing personal advantage to the common welfare, administered affairs most publicly and privately. So what you're describing right here is the overthrow of a king and the rise of a aristocracy, basically? Yeah, right here. Right. Okay, so this—I mean, he's—he's he's going play by play. Yeah, right in line with what Polybius had said. Right. Yeah, they—they they all go along the same thread. Even this thought even goes back to Aristotle's politics. Mm-hmm. It was in a infant form back then. It wasn't quite in the cycle form. He was talking about the different types of governments and how they go bad. Oh. Polybius is the one who really brought it together and made it a cycle. Administered affairs both pub- both publicly and privately with the utmost diligence and zeal, but this government passing afterwards to their descendants who, never having been taught in the school of adversity, knew nothing of the vicissitudes of fortune, these not choosing to rest content with mere civil equality, but abandoning themselves to avarice, which is greed, ambition, and lust, converted, without respect to civil rights, what had been a government of the best into a government of the few. By the way, just interrupting myself, sure. I, I just absolutely love the way he said, um, they never having been taught in the school of adversity. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> I think a few people that we know personally and a few people around the country could stand to learn uh, a little thing or two from Machiavelli. Yeah. Um, 
I just love the expression, never having been taught in the school of adversity. Maybe we should uh, we should incorporate that into the into into the social media. Yeah. We'll we'll do something with that. I do yeah. really like that quote too. It's almost you know people talk about the greatest generation in America because they they were forced to go through the Great Depression and mm-hmm. and the World War Two. Yeah, it's so no, it's they, no surprise. They they were schooled in. <laughs> They were schooled in the school of adversity. Yeah, exactly. So that was their life, adversity. When you go through adversity, it tends to garner, you know, good qualities. Oh, absolutely. Whereas we live in a time where, I mean, I don't I don't know if I know many people who are even in the military because most people are sheltered from it, including us. We've never been. Uh, yeah, that's true, including us. Uh, I know, you know, a couple but, but it's rare. It's not like you, you know, one out of every two people, two men you know, has been in the military. Oh, not certainly not like in generations past. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, oh, let me finish this. Sure. Um, and so very soon the plutocrats met with the same fate as a tyrant. They had recourse to a popular government, which they established on such a footing that neither king nor nobles had any place in it. So let's kick out the nobles. No kings either. Yeah, get them out of here. Get them out. This government also lasted for a while, but not for long. That's the funny part of this quote. He says, it lasted for a while, but not for long. <laughs> what <And> do you <laughs> mean? It's seldom after the generation which brought it into existence had died out. For suddenly, liberty passed into license wherein neither private worth nor public authority was respected, but everyone living as he liked, a thousand wrongs were done daily, whereupon, whether driven by necessity or on the suggestion of some wiser man among them and to escape anarchy, the people reverted to a monarchy. And there we are. We find ourselves at the beginning once again. Yeah, and very quickly, just the, the history of Rome, the, Rome going through all this. Sure. Is they started out with the seven legendary kings of Rome. Which is suspicious. People, most historians don't don't really think that that those were the only kings because each one had an average reign of like thirty or forty years. Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna believe it because I I'm a believer. You know, <laughs> I bet you also believe that uh, Gaius Marius found what seven eggs in. Uh, I like stories like that. Okay? <laughs> in a in a bird's nest. I like the stories of omens. I mean, it's they a cool just add story. so much spice to history, you know. It I, does. I mean, it, you're right. I mean, like you know, it's cool to think, what if there really were seven? Maybe it means something. And yeah. you know, thinking back on it, I mean, maybe Rome was pretty impressive. So maybe. And there were this. Uh, I think there are seven hills in Rome too, so it makes sense that they would have oh a symbolic seven, seven kings. But it started out with the famous Romulus, who the city is named after. Um, you know, over time, there were six more kings. They alternated between liking war like Romulus and liking peace and religion. Like the second king, I can't remember his name right now, but he was real. He basically created the Roman religion. So he's responsible for turning them from just a warlike people to more civilized, having more customs. So he just ran over to Greece and just like copied and pasted and just brought it back? I think they already knew about him. Oh, and I mean, I, I don't even really know the origins of the Roman religion. I just and know he, that it's all based. He brought more piety to, to the people, and he established like the priesthood and temples and stuff. Oh, okay. Anyways, it alternated between that. But then, the last king, um, I think he raped a noble woman's, a nobleman's wife. Hashtag me too. Yeah, for real. And I think she killed herself in shame. So then, uh, the aristocrats got together, the rich men, and. 
they threw out the king. He was expelled um, to another part of Italy. And that, that established the Roman Republic. Hmm. And then that, that went well for a while, and they actually had to incorporate the, ple- the assembly of the plebs in order to placate the majority of people. To keep them from overrunning and, and yeah. destroying everything, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But then the republic started falling apart, and the first emperor, Caesar Augustus, not Julius Caesar. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he was just dictator for life, right? Yeah. yeah. There were a few of those. There, there were a couple. But, you know, starting a little bit in the B.C. times, I think it was 30 B.C., something like that, uh, Augustus Caesar became the first emperor, thus bringing it back to the king phase. Mm-hmm. Where it remained for centuries. Yeah, because there, people always hate the idea of reverting to a non-democracy, but they don't call it the Pax Augusta for nothing. The peace of Augustus really yeah. brought a, like 100 years of prosperity to the whole empire. Well, the proof is in the pudding there, I guess. Yeah, it's not always bad. They weren't doing good before, obviously. Okay, here's another quote from Machiavelli. I say then that all these six forms of government are pernicious, the three good kinds from their brief duration, the three bad from their inherent badness. Wise legislators, therefore, knowing these defects and avoiding each of these forms in its simplicity, have made choice of a form which shares in the qualities of all the first three in which they judge to be more stable and lasting than any of these separately. For where we have a monarchy, an aristocracy, and a democracy existing together in the same city, each of the three serves as a check upon the other. Wise, wise words. Yes, wise. Um, Another quote on the stability of a balanced constitution. Among those who have earned special praise by devising a constitution of this nature was Lycurgus, the famous Spartan founder who so framed the laws of Sparta as to assign their special proper functions to kings, nobles, and commons, and in this way established a government which, to his great glory and to the peace peace and tranquility of his country, lasted for more than 800 years. The contrary, however, happened in the case of Solon, who by the uh, turn he gave to the institutions of Athens creating a democracy, created there a purely democratic government, of such brief duration that he himself lived to witness the beginning of the despotism of Pisistratus. Athens, as compared with Sparta, had but a short life. Um, Now, Rome formed an excellent government over time. Here's another quote. And although the kings of Rome lost their sovereignty in the manner and for the causes mentioned above, nevertheless, those who drove them out by at once creating two consuls to take their place preserved in Rome the regal authority while banishing from it the regal throne so that as both senate and consuls were included in that republic, it in fact possessed two of the elements above enumerated, to wit, the monarchic and the aristocratic. They were forced to concede a share to the people, the uh, assembly of the plebs, while with the share which remained, the senate and consuls retained so much authority that they they still held their own place in the republic. In this way, the tribunes of the people came to be created, after whose creation the stability of the state was much augmented, since each of the three forms of government had now its due influence allowed it. And lastly, for the quotes from Machiavelli, um, there, there are advantages of the Roman institution of the dictatorship. Quote, We find, accordingly, that while the dictatorship was conferred in conformity with public ordinances, and not through personal influence, it was constantly beneficial to the city, 
The dictator was not created for life, but for a fixed term, and only to meet the emergency for which he was appointed. For without uh, some such safeguard, a city can hardly pass unharmed through extraordinary dangers. Mm. I had a quote from, like, Ergus from way back. Um, not only, I mean, obviously he is from way back, but I had a quote saved in my phone that I saved years ago, and uh, I should have put it in there. It was a really good quote, and I wish I had it. And I don't even know why I brought this up, but I just wanted to, to say that that I'm sorry, that I missed a golden <laughs> opportunity to give you a good quote there. But maybe I'll uh, find another place for it. Maybe you should cut that part out. <laughs> no, no, I, th- I think I'll leave it there. Maybe it'll end up on uh, on social media or something. Look for it. Look for it. If you're yeah. listening right now, this is look go- for it. The golden radio right now. It's golden. Okay. It's golden. You know, I, I'm I'm not ashamed to to admit my mistakes. You know, and that was a that was a mistake. I should have included it in the notes, and I'm sorry. But we forge on. Let's talk about how anticyclosis has affected America. If we apply the theory of anticyclosis to the United States, we can see that certain events and cultural shifts throughout its history align with the cyclical changes predicted by Polybius. Let's review some of them. Uh, The first one we will review is the underrated significance of the 17th Amendment. Before the 17th Amendment, senators were chosen by state legislatures, uh, not the people of the state. They selected the best people from their state so that the state could be proud. This made it less populist and more aristocratic. Uh, With the passage of the 17th Amendment in 1913, the Senate just became the House with longer terms and more formal rules. It eliminated the aristocratic element from the federal constitution, and this means that the federal government has been too populist since the progressive era, uh, about the early 1900s. Now, what is the actual difference between the Senate and the House? Uh, Do you know anything else? Well, other than... Like the, the, the size, I mean, obviously, the size is different. The Senate is a hundred, uh, two per state, and then the House is done, uh, by uh, population. Yeah, four hundred thirty-five. Yeah, that's what we're up to right now. Yeah, um, and of course there are different rules, and and I am by no means an expert, and I am not too familiar with all of the ins and outs and all the rules, but of course, um, on certain issues, one, you know, a, a law must pass through one house before it can pass through the other. I mean, it's not like they're voting on it at the same time. And sometimes, depending on the uh, the political, you know, which political side has control of which one, it may spell doom for a law, or it may mean it'll shoot right through it. So, yeah, there are some differences, but definitely the that amendment really, it really brought them, made them more the same than different. Yeah, what's even the point? I think here's my... A little bit of mini hot take. Okay. I think students are lied to about the difference between the Senate and the House. They they're taught that oh we have we have two different houses to account for the different sizes of states. You know the Senate is more for is better for smaller states and the the House is more for bigger population states. Like so, Rhode Island loves having like their equal representation. Sure. In in the Senate, but the House is good for like Texas. You know. Yeah, I can see that logic. That's, they, they use that logic, but that's not the original purpose of making them so different. Otherwise, why would they be elected differently? This is true. That might be one reason. And they call it the, I don't know, it's like the Virginia plan versus the salt melts plan. But mm-hmm. it's not the only reason that they were different like that. Yeah, and, and I will admit, yes, that that's not covered in school. No. And that's a very important issue, and it should be really fleshed out in at least you know civics class 
I don't really remember even talking about that. Because, you know, when you go through public school, you're just, it's, it's almost indoctrinated in you that you have to, you have to advocate democracy in every case. But sometimes, you know, non-democratic elements are added to constitutions for good reasons. Like, they weren't just elitists who didn't want the plebs to vote. Yeah. They had reasons for making the House more democratic and the Senate less democratic. Yeah, and those, well, I mean, we've obviously covered those. Uh, it's for checks and balances. Yep. It's to make a more balanced form of government. Excellent point there. Uh, our second point here is uh, the changes in population characteristics have increased the speed of the cycle in America. Imagine a static society in which ethnic makeup, education level, literacy, economic mobility, average age, all of these things never changed. It's safe to assume that most laws, regulations, voting patterns would not change drastically. Therefore, the system of government would change very little. Change of population and the cycle will continue. Increased immigration to the United States and the broadening of civil rights to include all demographics have both changed the nature of the government. The republic is moving ever closer through democracy. Some might even say it's already here. Uh, this was also observed in ancient Rome during the struggle over the question of Italian citizenship. This was not the only factor which led to the drastic changes in the Roman uh, government, but it is a significant one which aided in the erosion of the republic and the ultimate slide toward democracy, the rise of the Caesars, and the despotism of later emperors. Anything you want to add on that one? No, you covered it. All right. Uh, technology is another factor uh, that has really uh, impacted the cycle. Harder to observe in the ancient world due to the slow pace of advancement, but consider the impact the printing press had on the Enlightenment and the American Revolution. Rise in literacy, the distribution of reading material, and propaganda increased interest in resistance to Britain and the tyrannical monarchy. If only among wealthy land-owning whites, the people who controlled politics and therefore the cycle at the time. The Industrial Revolution empowered the lower classes and raised the standard of living. This fueled the progressive movement, leading to women's suffrage, the growth of the social programs uh, that are still around today, and later the civil rights and LGBTQ+, I don't know the rest of the letters, movements. Granted, these demographics, uh, like women, the poor, African Americans, uh, alphabet people, <laughs> a louder voice in politics, and a greater hold on the direction and the speed of the cycle. And the internet, uh, more than maybe anything else, has made nearly all knowledge accessible to nearly all people. It has changed the cycle drastically, and it has simultaneously armed all people with the tools of misinformation and distraction. Uh, this has bred extreme division and politicization of nearly all aspects of daily life. These major cultural shifts have sped up the trend toward a more mob rule style of government. And religion is another factor. As Polybius explained, much of what leads a nation uh, to stray from an absolute system of government and adopt a tyrannical one is cultural degeneracy. The cultural norms and traditions which are the backbone of a society must be maintained, otherwise corruption will grow. The Enlightenment era and its focus on pure reason gave birth to widespread skepticism and agnosticism in intellectual circles, which persisted throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, culminating in the horrors of the 20th century as nations rejected religion in favor of secular belief systems. America has also seen a decline in religious observance, which has hastened the decline of the republic. Religion acts as a unifying force. Without it, groups are bound to unite around other beliefs, creating division. So how can we slow the cycle and preserve the republic that we have? 
in, in truth, the cycle cannot be stopped completely. It is a sociological force outside of any one person's control. But the real question is how do we slow it down? Strict constitutions, balanced mixed governments, having all three governments incorporated into your government structure, avoiding drastic social change, avoiding demographic change, preserving religion and traditions, or you could just move to a commune like an Amish setup. I didn't notice that was in the notes. I like that. You could do that, and that would be a perfectly reasonable thing to do these days. So many people are moving to, you know, compounds. The Benedict option. Yeah. Um, Ancient Rome is an example, as we said. The dual consulship is the monarchical element. The Senate is the aristocracy, and the assemblies are republicanism. For the U.S., the presidency is the monarchical element. Senate is was aristocratic, and the House is republican in nature. So what are our takeaways here? Anacyclosis is a natural, unstoppable force of human nature. It can be slowed through vigilance, education, and well-thought-out government structures. A change in the cycle usually produces violence and chaos, especially in the era of mob rule and the final transition back to kingship. And America is currently in the mob rule era, or very close to it. And it's not outside the realm of possibility that we will see a rise in violence within our lifetimes. Maybe, dare I say, a rise of a Caesar. Who can say? Who can say? So where do we go from here, Daniel? Well, uh, it's safe to say we'll stay on the cycle for a little bit. The merry-go-round will continue. Um, Does it show signs of slowing down? I don't think so. I think, if anything, it shows signs of speeding up. If anyone's in doubt, we are in the democratic element, or at least entering it. Yes. Going from republic to democracy. Quick question. When do you think was the last time you could have said we are a republic? I think the progressive era was when it really started to break down. Do you think even after the Civil War we were still a republic? Yeah, definitely. I don't see why... And not including the South, who was under military occupation for just reasons, but you know the the rest of the country, I think, was a validly a republic. But the Progressive Era really tried to make everything more democratic in nature, like we said, yes. the Seventeenth Amendment, but also the Sixteenth, Eighteenth, and Nineteenth Amendments. Sixteen is in- income tax, eighteen is prohibition, and nineteenth is we women, all love women the nineteenth suff- women's suffrage. Yes, I'm pro woman. Yes. We love women. We love women on the Sons of Antiquity podcast. We really do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can the cycle be reversed? Is there any uh, evidence of that? Uh, Not permanently. Maybe maybe just uh, Silicon Valley could get together and try to take over the country, but that would be kind of an aristocratic element, I guess, since they're rich and powerful. But I don't think it would last. No, I don't think so. I think people would reject that. Um, But... As undemocratic. I mean, there are some some effects of that, some efforts almost at being your know, Silicon Valley corporations becoming more powerful. But I don't think people would tolerate it as a governing style. If they were if they were overtly getting involved in elections more than they are now, I think there would be a breaking point, not just among conservatives. Oh, yeah, I think everybody would would be upset. Like if Zuckerberg ran, I don't think he'd, he'd get less support than Michael Bloomberg, I think. 
Yeah, and that's saying something. That <laughs> he really probably is. try to pay off his, you know, pay off supporters, like in the same way as Bloomberg. But if he won, he'd be the first lizard president. <laughs> There's always a first. There is always a first. Uh, has oh, that did, ever? Did worked? you know? By the way, I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. <laughs> did no, you know no. Biden was is the only silent generation president ever in America? He was the first. Really? Silent generation were those born between Greatest Generation and Boomers. So probably like your grandparents oh. or silent generation. Anyways, that's just a fun fact. No, wait, that, that, there must have been, though. No, there weren't. Really? He was the – people were always saying, oh, there's never been a silent generation president. But Biden was the first to be. He was born in the early 40s. Okay, so it would have to be someone born in the Trump early Trump was 40s. born in 45, so he's a – actually, no, he was born in 46. Okay, so, so he was a very – oh, he's an old boomer. Yeah. yeah, like the very first of the boomers. Yes. Wow. Sorry for that interruption. No, no, no. That's a that's a, a very interesting factoid. I didn't know that. Um, are there historical examples of uh, reversal? No. Um, I think that's that's pretty well documented that there can't aren't go any. Backward. Yeah. Uh, does change always entail violent revolution, or can it be done peacefully? Is there any evidence of yeah, that? Yeah, it can be done peacefully. Um, as I as we mentioned earlier, uh, going from you know, a restricted republic to a democracy, often it's just giving, you're conceding more uh, voting rights to the population. But I will say oftentimes, especially going from democracy mob rule to king, that's hardly ever going to be peaceful. Yeah, or kings hardly ever abdicate to like a group of aristocrats. So going, going from the corrupt ones to the good ones usually is violent. Yes. I'll yes. say that. I'd agree. That's all we have for our main topic today. Now we're going to present hot takes. It's time for the hot takes. So the hot takes segment is uh, at the end of every episode, we're going to present the other person with a topic that they do not know in advance and that they might have little knowledge of, but they still are asked to give a comprehensive analysis of it. Thus, a hot take. Yeah, well, at least Evan will demand a comprehensive analysis from me. I just want <laughs> Evan to scream and shout and get triggered. So that's basically the the bit. So Evan's gonna go first. Evan, lay it on me. What's your hot take for this uh, for this week? Right. So it was a pretty boring week, but I was scouring through the feed of CNN, the most reputable news source in the country, and I came across an opinion article saying why is why are late night hosts of comedy uh, supposed comedy shows why are they so political and they went through the history of of kind of late night starting with, um who was the original guy before letterman uh, i believe carson stewart oh no, carson, oh, carson. Going okay. back a long time like uh carson who would didn't really get into politics much. He'd make occasional jokes against politicians, but it was never one-sided. And it was never too deep of a cut to be, you know, to get more than just a laugh. It was just yeah. kind of like lighthearted fun. And going on to Letterman, who in the beginning was the same way. But then uh, Mr. John Stewart changed the game. And he's, um, instead of having it just be for laughs, for entertainment, he said it was more his show was going to be more of an editorial uh, show. 
So more giving his own opinion and being more serious about topics. And this was Stewart saying that. Yeah, yeah. He said he was going to take the show in an editorial direction. So he did that, and I guess it really caught on. It was saying, like, uh, before Obama, they would make fun of everybody. Like, they made fun of John Kerry, yeah. Al Gore, you know, for inventing the Internet, and George W. Bush, Which of course. Which he did. Yeah, of course. But Everybody knows that. They would make fun of everybody, but then they CNN even admitted that hardly anybody criticized Obama during his time in office. This is true. Yeah, but they said it was because he wasn't an easy target and he really like was hard to be the butt of a joke. Just I I can see it. I can see it. But then uh, it said, I don't so, know. I think I would I would contest that, but continue. But, you know, he he didn't have like a bunch of scandals or anything and like he didn't uh Oh, no, nah, I know at the end of Obama's era they said he was the most scandal-free president, you know, and that that to me is. I mean, less, I disagree with that as less well. Less scandals than Trump had, for sure. Eh, some of that was okay, artificially maybe. concocted. Scandal I, I doesn't have to be like a real thing; it just has to be what people perceive. Anyways, going on. Then there on. you go. Okay, I'll give you. And that. now, like every host on there, like Colbert and um, that British bloke, whatever his name is. Uh oh, the stay away from my son. Yeah, uh, John Oliver. <laughs> John Oliver. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm gonna I'm gonna post that meme on the uh, yeah. on the Twitter feed too. Yeah. So nowadays it's like all editorial with some jokes sometimes. Like, um, let's see, during the Obama era, uh, I know Colbert would, you know, he would act like a Republican, but a really dumb one. And he would just, that would yeah. be like his character. He would just like make fun of Republicans. But then CNN goes on and says the character character of the Trump presidency made it to where it was almost it was almost too bad to like make jokes about and just be lighthearted like we have to actually attack this dude because we're actually scared for our democracy so that's that's why it says we have to attack Trump oh and that okay. it's more editorial because more is on the line what are your thoughts about it? sorry that was long but that's okay it needed a good introduction I'm gonna give it a good answer uh, and my first inclination is to say that it's no surprise that these people take that view that oh, we had to attack him. We had to abandon making fun of everything and making light of this because he's such a threat to our democracy. It just goes to show the um, the lengths to which these people would go to just see reality the way they wanted to rather than the way it was. You know, they, based on their own preconceived ideas, had seen Trump walk in and, you know, comparing his ideas to theirs, it struck them as so polar opposite that it just it shook them to their very core. And he just attacked the media so directly too. And he did, yeah. And he he didn't he didn't lay down and he attacked them. And so they felt and it's all about feeling here, they felt threatened. They felt like uh, this guy is attacking us and he's attacking our democracy. And it was all emotion driven. And that's mm-hmm. of course why they acted the way they did because these these people tend to think with their emotions. And any I think any rational person who could put their emotions aside could still find humor uh, in those four years. And there were people who did. They weren't people in mainstream, but yeah. there were people who did. And so either those people are clinically insane or maybe they're onto something. Maybe if you just put your emotions aside for a minute, you can actually enjoy things and be a comedian. That's the thing. What what happened to comedy? I mean, people don't want to lecture all the time. 
they they, they when don't. they want to watch a lecture they go to a source that's not a comedy show yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly nobody wants to be lectured in, in 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 comedy or in advertising or in corporate emails or at school but that seems like it's everywhere now mm-hmm. it, that sort of mentality that talking down to that oh you need to be told what to do is everywhere and um that's why it's just kind of soured everything and and as to the re- as reason why it's there it's just ideology i mean uh let's let's talk about it in terms of the episode you know anacyclosis it's it's the change in the people people have changed and they have they have lost the ability to to think rather than they, they feel rather than think and it's because they've never had adversity fewer and fewer people have been challenged by adversity because that teaches you to put aside your emotions and really think critically and really get a thick skin and because people today have such a thin skin obviously they're going to react in this way and they're going to think that uh, a molehill is a mountain and so it's no wonder that people like uh, late night comedy hosts and, and people in Hollywood are reacting this way I mean, it's it's actually kind of sad in a, in a way that it's predictable. You know, it's if you could step back, knowing what we know now, and look at it, it makes perfect sense that our generation, you know, uh, young millennials, Gen Z, have ended up this way. It's no surprise because they've been, you know, they've grown up in front of a TV and they've never played outside. Or I mean, they don't play outside as much. They don't have as much adversity. Everything is bubble wrap for them. So, of course, they're going to act this way. Of course, they're going to put all of this, their politics, into everything. Okay, boomer. Yeah, I know. I sound <laughs> like a boomer. But, hey, I'm a, if I'm a boomer at my core, maybe that's okay. Maybe everybody it. needs a little bit of boomer in them. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Uh, I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my hot take on, okay. on why these news these uh not these news hosts but these comedy hosts are the way they are just bring back humor you know don't you can have your opinions but people need to laugh some yeah and that's my opinion one last thing i'll 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 say on that or rather i'll ask do you think that um i didn't mean to bump the mic there that was me oh um do you think that um do you think that anything is outside the realm of comedy like do you think that <laughs> Are there any golden calves? I don't know. That's a hard question. It is. Hey, I'm the question. one supposed to be asking you questions. I know. I can't help it, man. It's just <laughs> that's how I am. I just, I, you know, I want to, I want to turn questions back onto the question asker. I, just I think there should be some seriousness with comedy. Like you shouldn't make fun of starving kids in Africa. I, that's you may disagree. <laughs> You may disagree, but I think there are some limits, like, just to decency. Yeah. You know, making fun of someone whose, you know, husband just died or something, you know. Yeah. There needs to be some respect, but. So, like, there are some things that should be no-go. For the sake of respect, you know. Yeah. Like, like the Holocaust or, like, yeah. 9-11. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, that brings me to my hot take story for Evan. Like, ready for this? This is, like, top-tier tabloid. Oh, great. Awful. I'll read you the headline from Slate. Chrissy Teigen is a cyber bully. Could it sink her career? <laughs> now, do you know who Chrissy Teigen is? Uh, she's married to that, that singer, right? Yeah, the dude who looks like uh, Turtle. Uh, John Legend. <laughs> yeah, who was voted like sexiest man alive, even though that's just complete bogus. This, there's no way that dude's... I mean, he's not ugly. Uh, he's, 
He looks like a. I mean, he could be a woman. He's very effeminate. I mean, let's take the beard away. He could be a, a woman. Okay, enough of that. That's my opinion. Hey, no judgment here. And Sons of Antiquity is a judgment-free zone. Wait, that might be trademarked. I don't think we can say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so here's, let me read you a little bit of this. On Monday, the Daily Beast published an interview with Courtney Stodden, another big famous loser. The reality television star who was a tabloid mainstay after marrying 51-year-old Doug Hutchison at the age of 16. Mm. Despite the fact that Hutchison... An acting coach, who also appeared in The Green Mile, was undoubtedly the creep in the relationship. Stodden faced intense backlash, scrutiny, and harassment from the likes of Anderson Cooper, Joy Behar, and Chrissy Teigen. Wait, who's being scrutinized, the woman or the man? Uh, I believe the um, the woman here is being uh, criticized. Uh -huh. uh, according to Stodden, Teigen wouldn't just publicly tweet about wanting me to take a dirt nap, but would privately DM me and tell me to kill myself. <laughs> Oh. Publicly, Tegan tweeted things like, my Friday fantasy, you, dirt nap, mmm, baby, and go to sleep forever. What? <laughs> that's cool. I mean, that's rough if that actually happened. It is pretty rough. Yeah. Wait, what is it? What's the relationship with, with this lady and dirt? Why, is, why does dirt keep coming up? Dirt nap? Yeah. If you take a dirt nap, that means you're laying six feet under. Oh. Yeah, you didn't know that? No. <laughs> Jeez. I'm going to make these guys take a dirt nap. Yeah, that's oh. like, I'm going to kill them. Yeah. Mm. So... I guess my real question here is, um, do you feel like this is good behavior, especially from somebody who is on the compassionate left? Chrissy Teigen is very, very much on the political left. Is she? No. Yes. I don't know. She's very, um, very outspoken on her Instagram and Twitter, and um, she uh, supports, you know, mainstream yeah. left causes. I'd like to see proof that she actually told this girl to kill herself. Well, it said in the article that she publicly said, I guess she's, you would call this a subtweet. I'm getting in touch with my inner boomer here. I believe that's what they call this, uh, where you don't actually at the person, but you just, like, refer to them. And she says, my Friday fantasy, you dirt nap, mm, baby, and go to sleep forever. What, and what this did is, this girl do to Christy T? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess she just really thought that being with 51-year-old Doug Hutchinson was – gross um i don't really know if they have any bad blood other than that but that's just what was on the internet today and i thought that's not really nice considering everyone made fun of uh melania trump for trying to be against cyberbullying. well that was ironic i mean i guess it was <laughs> but they criticized the president for doing the same the same thing you know and then here they go saying oh you should kill yourself Ooh. Yeah. On, on, online. Assuming that the allegations are true, that's just terrible. It is. I mean, it was unwarranted, if, assuming they don't have any other beef with each other. Uh, I don't believe so. I don't, uh, you know, maybe I'm not reporting the full story, but it sounds like, it sounds like a lot of people jumped on, like they mentioned here, uh, Joy Behar from, I think she's on, it's not The View, is it? I it might be The I think view. it's The View. Um, and then there was Anderson Cooper. I know him. Yep. I mean, we, uh, we know this guy. Pretty famous. So, a lot of famous people having something to say about this woman. You know, I actually, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, people assume we're huge First Amendment people. I think that's generally true. But People I, assume we are? Yeah. You and I? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'd, I'd I, say that's true. Generally, people think, like, people right of center are big fans of free speech, you know, when it comes to, like, bullying people and stuff and other stuff. Um, but... Imagine if 
this girl actually killed herself. Let's just, you know, theorize here that this that she killed herself, you know, a few days after getting that DM. Then I think that Tegan should get a lot more than just, um, you know, like ruining her career or whatever. If you think about it, what what is the status of suicide in in law in our current legal system? As far as who's responsible? As I'm saying, it, are there any legal statutes about suicide? I, I do believe that there have been some cases, and I'm not, again, I'm not an expert. Don't quote me on this. But I believe there have been a few cases where people have been cyberbullied into committing suicide, and the people who did the cyberbullying, if it was intense enough and could be shown that they had, like, intent to make this person die, that they were held criminally responsible. Yeah. I, I agree with that because I think actually suicide is illegal in most states. Really? Yeah. I mean, people think, oh, that's cruel. Like, you, you try to kill yourself and then you it doesn't happen and you go to jail for, like, not killing yourself. But anyways, hmm. if let's, let's say suicide is against the law, then somebody who says kill yourself is encouraging you to disobey the law. So it's... They're they're kind of they're an accessory to probably well, I, well, it I don't could know. be your murder possibly well yeah. not murder but it would be it is self murder that's what suicide is yeah okay I so guess if suicide is against way. the law if we concede that suicide is illegal which I'm assuming for my argument that it is and that suicide is murder of oneself then in you know when you tell someone to do it you are encouraging them to commit a terrible crime. That's illegal and immoral. So they should be held responsible. If you actually tell someone, it's like me telling you, Daniel, why don't you just go become, you know, go become a drug dealer. This is how you do it. And then you do it, then I'm, I might be held responsible for that. Maybe. So if this does come to some sort of legal issue, which it, it might not. It won't if she doesn't kill herself. But if she did, and it did become a legal issue, would you be at the courthouse demanding that Chrissy Teigen be put away. I'm, I I don't live in California. But so. if you did, <laughs> hey, in episode zero, you were wondering if I lived in California, what would I do? So if you live in California, <laughs> what would you do? I wouldn't publicly protest, but I think it would be justified to put her up for for like a manslaughter or something. Wow. Some lower crime, maybe third degree murder. If you think about it, you're, you're encouraging somebody to commit murder. I guess so. If it is, if you hold the belief that it is self-murder, which that, I guess that's, that's literally fair. literally the de- like the origin of the word sui self side kill the kill so kill. Then there you go. That answers that. That's my very hot take. Uh, tweet at me about your about how I hate the First Amendment. <laughs> but that's what I say, and it's just such it. It's such hypocrisy with this lady it seems I mean come on be nice just actually be nice don't just say be nice yeah be nice guys that's all we have for today's show join us again next week for even more ancient wisdom and Chrissy TV jokes